Hi all and a warm welcome from a sub-zero North Wales to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the region's premier one-person true crime show seeking to bring you tales that are surreal, horrific and unfamiliar ones from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Searching these out is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The hairy football peaks is right at my feet and you guys are you guys, the enthusiasts who keep me coming back for more. It's great having you all here joining me as ever, and I hope that as you're listening in, then the episode finds you and yours all good and all well. So there won't be too much waffling at the beginning here this time, as I know that I can do, of course I do, come on, I'm me after all. We'll get right back onto the tailing question for the episode shortly. I will just say a thanks to both my returning and new Patreon supporters this time around, with shoutouts going out to Michael O'Connor, Sophie Adams, Catherine, Charlotte, Jonathan Parker and CK who's opted to support the show annually. So ace of you guys, thank you so much and enjoy those bonus episodes that you get access to for your support with the latest one, Peer Point's Last Drop, being released very recently and the next one coming at the end of the month and the end of the year. I've opted for some more horrors over the holidays this time. If you want to join these guys and others and get yourself unlimited access to episodes such as Death in Highgate Woods or Angel from Hell, perhaps The Beauty in the Bikini or Double Brandy Dan and Auntie Elsie, then it's really simple to do. For a small contribution to the upkeep and the striving forward of the show, quicker than Mark Drakeford closing a pub round here, you can be doing so by seeking out and signing up at the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on the Patreon site. Or, you don't need to do any of that, you can just use the link that's ever-present in the show notes each week. Now, have also you gotten your tickets to CrimeCon 2021 yet? If not, then why not? It promises to be an unmissable weekend next June down in the smoke, where alongside many high-profile guest speakers and authors from the world of true crime, you'll find some of your favourite hosts from the shows that you love, and me as well. I'll be there for the weekend and I look forward to seeing some of you guys at the event. Mine's a Guinness or a red wine, before you ask. Now the organisers of CrimeCon have some early bird tickets remaining that they very kindly offered so that if you get yours and you quote enthusiast when you come to check out, you'll get it 10% knocked off the total cost of them by guinea or what that, isn't it? And if you let me know that you've used the code, well, I'll make sure that there's something at the event waiting for you from me as a thank you. Details where you can do so on the CrimeCon website can be found within the link in this week's episode show notes, and I look forward to seeing some of you guys there. Now, something I haven't done for absolutely ages here on the show is include a promo, so I've got one coming up at the end of the episode, but I'll tell you more details on that later. Right now, we've got a story to continue, haven't we? Now, if you haven't yet listened to part one of Margaret, Murder and the Missing Motive, then it's probably best if you stop here and head over to listen to that one first, because part two will be largely lost on you if you don't do so. It'll make as much sense as our bloody lockdown rules do. If you are caught up, so a recap. Last time around on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we looked at a case of senseless murder in East Yorkshire back in the mid-1990s the brutal murder of 66-year-old grandmother Margaret Wilson, who was killed in a savage attack in the middle of the afternoon while she was out walking along a country lane in the village that she'd lived in for many years, 
the East Yorkshire village of Burton Fleming. We heard of the resulting investigation, the discovery of the murder weapon, which had a unique and unidentifiable stain on it, and the subsequent trace of this to a particular company in the area, several sightings of what was very likely the killer in his car near the murder scene and in the village itself, an appeal concerning the case on Crime Watch UK, because of course it was still back on then, thanks very much BBC, and also the assistance of the crime faculty at Brams Hill, who after examining the inquiry files, advised police that their review had concluded that there was a person of interest that they advised all inquiries going forth to be based with him in mind as a serious suspect, based on the proximity of where he lived to the murder scene, his car and his place of work. The man had come to police attention very early on in the inquiry and had already been spoken to on three occasions by that time, the first being just two days after the murder. So let's find out who we're talking about then, eh? The episode contains details and descriptions of a crime and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always, folks, please use discretion whilst you're listening in. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for part two of a case I've entitled Margaret, Murder and the Missing Motive. The person who the crime faculty had identified as the most viable person of interest going forward in the inquiry was a 31-year-old ex-Royal Engineer soldier named Derek George Christian, who lived in the nearby town of Driffield, some 12 miles away from Burton Fleming. Christian's name had first come to the attention of police just two days after the murder, when he was mentioned in a statement by a local business proprietor named Alex Bristow, a service station owner from Thornholm, a small hamlet a couple of miles southeast of Burton Fleming. Alex had gotten in touch with police upon hearing of the murder the day after it, as he realised that he knew Margaret Wilson, she was one of his mother's friends and when he heard that part of the appeal was that Margaret's killer was believed to have been driving a white or light-coloured Montego estate car, he was straight on the telephone to inform the incident room that on New Year's Eve 1994, a Saturday less than six weeks earlier, he had sold a light silver Montego estate car for £1,800 to a man from the nearby town of Driffield, who'd paid for it part in cash and the balance by cheque. Derek Christian. Following up on the statement of Alex Bristow then, two days after the murder, two detectives visited Derek Christian at his home in Driffield, and sure enough, a light silver Austin Montego estate car was parked on the driveway of the house, alongside a Peugeot, and a check of the Montego's registration tallied with the details that Alex had supplied to police in his statement. This was indeed the car that he'd sold. Now it was not lost on either detective also, that although the car had been described as silver in Alex's statement, and indeed it was silver, in bright sunlight it could appear as being white. During the visit, Derek Christian appeared calm and relaxed, completely unruffled as detectives completed the personal details form about him, noting amongst other things the details of his family background, his employment record, an account of his movements on the day of the murder, that kind of thing, you know. The form describes Christian as being 31 years of age, locally born, married with three children, of slim build, with lengthy dark hair and a pronounced goatee beard, 
but no moustache. He was an ex-soldier who had left the military only a couple of months earlier, having served some 14 years, and was currently employed as a labourer at the McCain's processing plant on Scarborough's Havers Hill, where his father-in-law, George Green, an engineer there, had wangled Christian a job as a labourer on the early shift. Christian's account of his movements on the 9th of February was that he'd risen at 5.30am, dressed in the dark save disturbing his still sleeping wife Diane, and had left the family home that morning by 6am to make the 21 mile journey to McCain's, where he worked the 7am to 3pm shift as was its designated pattern. By 5 past 3 he'd finished work, clocked off from McCain's for the day, and was in his car beginning his journey home from his workplace back home to Driffield, heading west from the plant onto the A64 and following this road down for some distance until turning off onto the B1249, which passes through the villages of Foxholes and Langtoft, before arriving in Driffield, and looking at Google Maps, which would be the most logical and direct route home for him. He was alone throughout the journey, and at no point did he stop en route until he'd arrived home at 3.50pm to greet his three sons home from school, a time which he could be sure of because he claimed to the detectives that he always made a point of looking exactly what time he'd arrived home. Christian told the officers that the clothes he was wearing at that moment were his work clothes, the very same ones that he'd worn on the day of Margaret's murder a black and blue nylon Sheffield Wednesday coat bearing a Puma King logo on the right sleeve, a green and purple sleeved regatta fleece jacket, bluey grey used company jogging bottoms, a faded apple green sweatshirt bearing a Carlsberg world famous logo on the front, and his ever-present black woolly Sheffield Wednesday hat. He furthered, I wear these clothes to work every day. In addition to this regular work outfit, Christian claimed that he had a long green padded jacket that he kept in the car and that he sometimes wore whilst driving. Now one of the detective's spidey sense tingled a little bit here and he made a mental note concerning the detail in the statement of Martin Hornsey who had claimed when describing Margaret's killer to police that it looked to him as though the murderer had been wearing a green body warmer not a million miles away from a green fleece with purple sleeves which I can actually picture being as horrific as it sounds. Wearing get-up like that and you'd look like some sort of bloody fashionista green goblin, wouldn't you? I spidey tie in there. Once Christian had gotten home on the day of the murder, he claimed that shortly after arriving home, he'd taken his wife for their weekly shop at the local Quicksave supermarket in Driffield. The family had then returned home, and he had been in the house all the remainder of the evening. So overall, as just one of several persons of interest at that stage of the inquiry, detectives felt that Christian had accounted for himself well during his interview, but he remained in the back of their minds. He had no definitive proof that he was elsewhere in the murder, as he claimed to be travelling, and no one could vouch for this. He had a car of the same make and model as the killer's. He was employed by the biggest customer of the type of knife used in the murder and there were other points about him that he ticked on the psychological profile created by Dr. Badcock, a local guy, an ex-soldier, and someone who was in a long-term relationship. But after evaluating his relevance to the inquiry at the time, senior officers decided that there were no grounds to effect an arrest, 
and Christian's account was logged into the Holmes entry concerning the investigation as a completed action. There his name sat for the next four months, but once the murder weapon had been proven to have originated from McCain's, Derek Christian was now brought to Driffield Police Station for questioning, spoken to for the second time in the inquiry. He was shown a picture of the knife that had been used to kill Margaret and asked if he'd ever seen one like it, but he was adamant that he'd never before seen such a knife, which was odd because police had been to McCain's and noticed so many of these knives lying about them being so commonplace at McCain's that it would have been impossible not to have seen them. But this still wasn't proof that Christian was a killer, was it? Yeah, okay, he worked at McCain's, but so did lots of other people. It employed almost a thousand workers, all of whom would have had access to the type of knife used to kill Margaret Wilson, plus as would all of McCain's former employees, and any visiting contractors or suppliers to the plant would as well. But it had undisputedly come from there, so by the 4th of September then, a mass interviewing of the current employees of McCain's began. It was a massive undertaking requiring a number of porter cabins being set up in the car park to provide interviewing officers the space required to conduct their inquiries. Of course, Derek Christian was amongst these employees, and a week after the interviews began, he was spoken to by police for the third time in the inquiry, where again they noted that he appeared relaxed and untroubled whilst talking to them. He even had a bit of a cheeky flirt with a female officer who was interviewing him. It was also noted that, although by this third interview with police, Christian had grown a moustache and had a fuller, more pronounced goatee beard than when he was previously spoken to, he still bore a strong resemblance to the rest of the physical features of the murder suspect on the artist's impression of the killer that police were using. Again, both artists' impressions that were created are up as a picture on the show's Instagram page if you want to head over and have a look. Now it later transpired that out of all of the McCain employees who were spoken to, the only one who owned a Montego and took a southwards journey home from work practically past the murder scene was Derek Christian. So on the face of things, he's ticking boxes like a bingo player on speed and was in the back of many an officer's mind, but there was still nothing defining to link him with the murder. This is where the investigation data was passed over to the crime faculty team who analysed the investigation and pointed out that the most logical source going forward in the inquiry would be to focus upon the person who they deemed the strongest person of interest based upon intel to that point, Derek Christian. So, Detective Superintendent Corrigan now assigned a team of three officers, Detective Inspector John Curry, Detective Constable Mike Allibone and Detective Constable John Thurkettle to create an exhaustive profile of Derek Christian. Everything needed to be known about him, his family dynamic and background, his schooling, his employment and military history, any current and previous friendships and relationships explored, his financial standing, star sign, first pet, porno name, everything would need to be looked at and every possible line of inquiry arising from this would need to be explored and eliminated, were there any family or personal situations, for example, through to examining things like any fluctuation in his finances around the time of the murder that might suggest he'd killed Margaret as the result of a contract being taken out on her, for whatever reason. Now that's about as unlikely as seeing an old lady wearing a super dry jacket, 
and as we said, Margaret had absolutely no enemies whatsoever, but any possibility, however remote it is, must be explored. Because the inquiry was now working on limited resources, by this time approaching having been run for a year, and the team had dwindled somewhat because other pressing matters needed their attention, as we've said many times here on the show, crime doesn't wait in line, does it? This detailed profiling project was given just a three-month time limit. So, who was Derek Christian? Born in East Yorkshire in February 1964, Christian, one of five children, having two brothers and two sisters, had enrolled in the British Army at age 16, becoming a sapper in the Royal Engineers, where he spent most of his service life working as a storeman. He had married his wife Diane at aged 18 in 1982, whom he'd gone on to have three sons with, and although the marriage was somewhat strained by 1995, where had set in due to periods in the marriage where Christian had been womanising, had failed to send money home whilst posted overseas to support his family, and had been a heavy drinker, it had mostly been harmonious, with Christian especially devoted to his three sons. Following service in the UK and overseas, Christian had left the army the previous year and returned to his native Driffield area, and like many who've spent a large part of their formative years in the forces, Christian found the change from military to civilian life difficult to adjust to, which to be fair, it really is, I reckon it took me a good year to do it. And he found himself directionless in civvy life. After a few months following his release from the army, with no prospect of gainful employment looming up, Christian's father-in-law, George Green, put in a word for his son-in-law at the McCain's processing plant where he worked as an engineer, and Derek was taken on and began working as a labourer there towards the end of 1994. Here, he proved to be a reliable and punctual worker, although not particularly being known as a sociable one, for although he would pass the time of day with his fellow workers, preferred to keep mostly to himself, to the point that his workmates considered him aloof. Although he often visited his parents, he got on fairly well with his in-laws, George and Jean Green, and always had the companionship of his children, Christian was pretty much the same at home, never really a socialite, someone who went out for a pint now and again, but had few drinking acquaintances in the local Driffield pubs, and was only a fleeting visitor to them. His overriding passion in life was his football, and in particular his avid support of Sheffield Wednesday Football Club, where as a mark of his fanaticism for his home team, he never left the house without his black woolly Sheffield Wednesday supporters hat on, and where most Saturdays without fail, he and his sons would make the 150 mile round trip down to Hillsborough to watch the Owls play, rarely missing a match. If not at the game, then Christian spent most of his available leisure time in his favourite football watching chair at home, glued to Sky Sports, especially if there was a match on. So pretty much an ordinary sounding bloke, the army had instilled in Derek Christian to live by routine, as it does, and at home he was generally habitual. He didn't particularly get up and go to work with the enthusiasm of Mary Poppins, but it was a necessary to pay the bills. And although he hadn't made the most of his military career, taking voluntary redundancy after 14 years service, he was generally content in life, described by those who knew him as home-loving. He hadn't any criminal record, 
no particularly close friendships of notes or any feuds or disagreements with anybody, and aside from his occasions of philandering, no past relationship issues involving violence in either these or his marriage. There were no past instances of any serious medical episodes either, aside from he and his wife parting for a time which had at one stage led Christian to become depressed and to be prescribed antidepressants by his GP, which he stopped taking after only some three days due to a dislike of the side effects of them. And the more police looked at him, as 1995 turned into 1996, there was still nothing concrete found to lay the murder at Derek Christian's door. There wasn't a single shred of evidence that he had any kind of psychotic tendencies, nothing to indicate someone disturbed enough to have spontaneously jumped out of a car somewhere between his work and his home and randomly murdered an innocent grandmother for no reason whatsoever. But by January 1996, the investigating team thought that they had a turning point. Christian had of course been looked at to see if he had a criminal record, specifically a history of violence, when he first came onto police radar following the statement by Alex Bristow, and he was found to be clean, as we've said. But when the inquiries had centred on Christian's military career, the Chichester Military Records Office told a different story. The records showed that during the course of his 14-year army career, Christian had twice been court-martialed for assault towards females, both of the attacks described as, I quote, extremely violent and motiveless. On the first occasion in 1983, Christian had attacked a woman at a dance hall in Germany called La Strada, saying all women are slags during the assault. And a couple of years later, while serving in Cyprus, he'd strayed into the female army quarters and threatened the duty female RMP, Corporal Rebecca Edwards. Now she'd managed to get him outside the block and shut the door, which Christian had then battered on furiously with a spade. In all, Christian had been seriously disciplined on three occasions alongside the two court-martials for the incidents I've described. All of the incidents leading to disciplinary said to be alcohol fueled and he'd even served time in the military prison at Colchester, where believe me, if you go there, you certainly dry out and come out super fit. I've not served time there or anything, but I do know of people who've been sent there. I've seen them come back. Yet despite this record, when Christian took voluntary redundancy from the army in 1994, he left with an exemplary record of service. That meant that despite these occasional drunken outbursts and assaults on female army personnel, in the eyes of the forces, he'd done nothing to seriously damage his good character, which probably meant just as well he's pissing off and is someone else's problem. As police were still profiling Christian, a second brief appeal concerning Margaret's murder was broadcast on the Crime Watch UK edition of the 24th of January 1996, to coincide with the approaching first anniversary of her murder, and although the main points of the original appeal were again stressed, resulting in 200 response calls being received, no significant new information came forward from this. Nevertheless, police did feel that the reappeal had been of the value of keeping the still unsolved crime in the public awareness. By this time also, the process of the mass questioning of employees was still underway at McCain's, and by the 21st of February, 
police were to speak to a young female HGV driver that we shall call Tina, whose name had cropped up as a person of note to them already, as prior to speaking to her, detectives had been told by a number of employees that they'd already spoken to that rumours abounded around the factory that Tina and Derek Christian had been having an affair. When Tina was questioned about this point, she denied it outright. She did impart that she'd fallen into conversation one day with Christian at the potato input area of the plant, and that she found him friendly, but as time passed, she began to become aware that he may have misconstrued her open manner for something that it wasn't. She'd sent him a birthday card, and he in return had sent her a couple of cards and a photograph of himself, as well as notes that he left for her in the cab of her lorry. Because she wasn't interested in any kind of relationship and thinking, whoa there Leslie, calm your jets, she'd been careful not to give Christian her address or telephone number, so was therefore surprised, well, a little bit creeped out is probably a better, more apt way of putting it, to answer the telephone about a minute after she'd gotten home one night in 1995, only shortly after the murder of Margaret Wilson, to find Derek Christian on the end of the line, who asked her if he could call around to her house, claiming that he was in a telephone box very near to her home. Now, alarmed at the thought that he must have been, because she literally had just walked in through the door, and had either followed her home, or finding out her address covertly, had watched the house intently until he'd seen that she'd arrived back, Tina managed to put him off, claiming falsely that she was expecting company at any moment. Sources that I used for research reported that following this information, police had such concerns for Tina's safety that all further interviews with her took place away from McCain's so as to not alert Christian and possibly place her in harm's way. A personal alarm was even installed in her home. Christian's estranged wife was later to tell police that she had assumed for some time that Tina was his girlfriend the way he would discuss her and the same was also believed at McCain's, where Christian would openly discuss this affair with Tina, so to speak, describing pastimes that they shared, and other things that they did together. I'm sure that you catch my drift there. So, with the findings from Christian's military career, coupled with what arguably could be obsession bordering on the stalking and the telling of tall tales, it was another box ticked, added to the already sizable list of circumstantial evidence police had, and Derek Christian just kept creeping that much up and up in police eyes as the most likely person to have killed Margaret Wilson. He was by this time being kept under close and constant police surveillance, and by the onset of March 1996, following consultation with our old friends the Crown Prosecution Service, who confirmed that there was sufficient evidence the inquiry team had begun planning Derek Christian's arrest on suspicion of murder, which we shall hear about following a short word from the show sponsors. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now we've all found 2020 one of those years you can't wait to see the back of, challenging for us all to say the least, and many of us are finding things difficult. Personally, being separated from those closest to me I've found hardest, and trying to strike a good balance between my work, my personal, and even my podcasting life, whilst ensuring that I'm there for them as best I possibly can, is proper wearing, I tell you. 
if you can identify and something is preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness, this is where BetterHelp can help you. With its broad range of expertise available and with specialists in a vast range of issues from dealing with grief to sleeping problems, some of which may not be available locally to you, in less than 24 hours you can start communicating with a professional counsellor in a private, safe and confidential online environment. Just to clarify here also, it isn't self-help. What BetterHelp does is assesses the issues that you may be facing and matches you up with your own licensed professional therapist for professional counselling. Once you start communicating, you'll get thoughtful and timely responses from your assigned counsellor who you can message anytime. Plus you can schedule weekly phone or video sessions with them. There's no waiting rooms or being put on hold. Plus it's available for clients worldwide and is much more affordable than traditional offline counselling. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. As dawn broke on Sunday the 24th of March 1996, teams of officers called simultaneously at the homes of both the marital home in Driffield that Christian shared with his wife and children, and his parents' home in the nearby town of Bridlington, where surveillance of Christian had revealed that he'd been periodically living at following a partial separation from his wife. In the event, he was found in bed at the marital home, 20 New Walk, and having not been spoken to by police since his last interview in September 1995, was shocked to be woken, cautioned and arrested by DC Mike Alabone, who handcuffed Christian and told him he was under arrest on suspicion of the murder of Margaret Wilson. Simultaneously, Christian's parents' house in Bridlington, number 41 Cornfield Crescent, was painstakingly examined by a team of search officers and amongst the items that were seized by police were articles of clothing, in this case including blue-grey jogging pants, a green Carlsberg sweatshirt, and the fleecy green and purple-sleeved regatta jacket that Christian had been wearing on the day that he was first spoken to by police more than a year previously. Also discovered in a cupboard in his bedroom at his parents' house, and seized by police, was a copy of the whole Daily Mail newspaper dated Wednesday the 7th of February, which was Christian's 32nd birthday, and which some sources I've used for research claim happened when discovered to be open on an appeal published within it, marking the first anniversary of Margaret's murder, headlined, Who is Hiding the Killer? Taken to Driffield Police Station, upon arrival Christian was once again cautioned and informed of his legal rights which he invoked by requesting that the duty solicitor, John Batchelor, be present throughout the interview. Once Batchelor had arrived and had had time to brief his client, the interview, conducted by DC's Alibone and Wally Youngman, began. Throughout the interview, Christian behaved calmly and answered every question that was put to him with little or no hesitation, answering clearly, at length, and often including details that had little or no relevance to the matter in point. 
He was a good talker, he could always remember exactly what he'd already said, and never once lost his temper during an interview, the only signs of any ruffling to him coming when he was asked questions that he'd already given an answer to, and he gave a curt reply. The consistent line that he'd stuck to throughout interviews was that he'd arisen at 5.30am and had left the house just after 6am to go to work at McCain's as routine on the morning of Thursday the 9th of February the previous year, where he'd worked the 7am to 3pm shift. It had been an uneventful routine day and he had clocked off at 1 minute past 3, being in his car and on the road home by 5 minutes later. The route he had taken home, which usually took around 35 minutes depending upon traffic, was the same route he always used, he'd not diverted off route anywhere, and had arrived home at 3.50pm, checking the time as he always did. Shortly afterwards, he had used a cash point at the bank in Driffield to remove £30 in cash, before then going supermarket shopping with his wife and children. Asked once again about the knife, he denied having seen such a knife before, and asked about the copy of the whole Daily Mail that had been found at his parents' home, the only copy that had been found in the house, and open, as, as I said some sources claim, at an appeal page about the murder of Margaret Wilson. Christian claimed that it was one of several that had accumulated at the house over the course of time. He'd kept this particular one because the 7th of February, two days before the first anniversary of the murder, was his birthday, and by that time, having separated from Diane, he had decided on his 32nd birthday to treat himself to a visit to a massage parlour, and that edition of the whole Daily Mail contained listings for massage parlours in the local area. In repeating this story several times, Christian never displayed the subconscious body language that people often display when they feel threatened or are being defensive, for example, hugging himself or shaking his head constantly, and it was noted that he never once protested his innocence, nor complained about being in custody on suspicion of murder. But it was not lost on either officer that Christian could never make direct eye contact with them in interviews. When spoken to, he would be looking just past them, fixing at a point on the wall behind them, and this lack of eye contact is an indicator. They were also left with the impression that his story was just too slick and polished. There was none of this, oh well, it was bloody ages ago that, let me have a bit of a think about it. There was none of that malarkey. Christian's answers from the first had been smooth and detailed. As though he'd been thinking over and refining what he was going to say for months and had rehearsed it, they thought. Between the interview sessions, Christian was allowed fresh air and exercise in an enclosed yard between the station custody suite and the main building, supervised at the time by a matron. I can never not see the image of Hattie Jakes myself when I hear that term, and that's one proper gripper that you wouldn't mess with that, isn't it? And the matron later told detectives that out of all of the arrested persons she'd ever supervised before, including murderers, no one had given her the creeps quite like Derek Christian had, especially by the way he looked at her. Just because someone gives you the creeps, though, doesn't make them a killer, does it? Michael Gove gives me the creeps, but I'm sure he's not a mass murderer. 
Although the circumstantial evidence that police had was telling them that it had been Derek Christian who'd savagely killed Margaret Wilson, the question intended to go in circles around this circumstantial evidence, and ultimately, the interview added nothing of substance that would support a murder charge, despite an extension for custody being applied for and granted. On the evening of Monday the 25th of March 1996, Christian was unconditionally released from custody, but with police convinced that they were powerless in letting a killer walk free. So he still remained classified as suspect number one, and the clothing and effects that had been removed from his and his parents' houses were sent off for forensic examination. Summing up the feeling of the inquiry team at that point, DC Alabone later said, I would say it was probably the lowest point in my 15 years in the police. It's someone that you're interviewing for the most serious offence that there is, feeling, knowing he's the person who committed the offence. You really wonder whether you've done your job properly. And then the following day, Tuesday the 26th of March, John Batchelor rang the incident room and told them that after speaking with his client, Derek Christian now wanted to change part of his statement concerning his movements on the day of the murder. Now to keep with the continuation of the investigative chain, both officers who had interviewed him over the weekend had to be available to retake this statement, but owing to personal leave and court commitments between the two, it was more than two weeks from that point that DC's Alibone and Youngman could both be available. So an appointment was arranged for Christian to attend Beverly Police Station on the 10th of April. On the due date, Christian appeared, accompanied by John Batchelor, and was duly re-interviewed under caution, with the interview also being tape-recorded. Christian now delivered a different version of his movements on the day of the murder, which he claimed he'd recalled following a conversation with his father-in-law the evening after his release from custody. His mother and father-in-law, George and Jean Green, had around the time of the murder been moving house from their home in Scarborough to a house only a couple of hundred yards from the Christian's marital home in Driffield. And Christian's new story now was that on the 9th of February of the previous year, George Green had rung him at work in McCain's to ask him to help move a roll of new linoleum that had been delivered that morning to their Scarborough house and to drop it off at the new house in Driffield for them, as he had a roof rack on his vehicle that could be used to transport it. Christian had agreed, and subsequently had finished work and left McCain's and driven to his in-law's house in Scarborough, where he had loaded and secured the roll of lino onto the roof rack, and drove with it to the new address in Driffield. The Greens had followed him in their own car all the way to their new house, at which point Christian had left the Montego outside their new home, and walked the 200 yards back to his own house. He then gotten into a second car that he had, a Peugeot, and had driven his wife and children shopping to Driffield, where just after 4pm he had used his cash card to withdraw £30 from the cash machine at the bank there, before going on to Quicksave. Nowhere near time enough to dodge the in-laws, zoom off to a quiet country village mid-journey, and slashed the throat of an unsuspecting elderly lady passing at random, then clean himself up and go off wandering around the supermarket like nothing had happened. 
Now, this was a very convincing alibi because it was corroborated by both George and Jean Green, who believed this to be true and who both gave statements to that effect. The time frame of an hour could also be ascertained from Christian clocking off work at one minute past three as the machine had time stamped it and was also supported by the cash point detail, which was verified by a check of the bank's computer system showing that Derek Christian's cash card had indeed been used to withdraw £30 from the terminal at 4.06pm. Police also discovered that Christian had written a cheque in the local Quicksave supermarket at 4.31pm, following the shopping trip that he'd admitted, which could verify his movements and supported his story. But whilst George Green was certain that the date was the 9th of February, Mrs Green was less certain. She claimed that the move could just as likely have taken place on Friday the 10th. She also added that during the journey back to Driffield, they'd driven past the aftermath of a road traffic accident. Now a check of police logs could find no report of an accident at the point Jean had specified on that particular date, but there had been one involving the circumstances leaving such an aftermath as she'd described that had occurred a month later on the 10th of March the same day that it was ascertained Christian had also been helping them, this time to move carpet from their old house to the new one, and had taken the same route. If you're transporting stuff whilst moving house, you don't tend to vary from the most direct and logical route between the two points, do you? So although a statement had this slight flaw, it didn't detract from Christian's new alibi being a strong one supported by the evidence from the cash point terminal, the clocking on machine and the green statements. As he'd volunteered this information of his own free will and although was under caution was not under arrest, he could not be pressed further to try and pick holes in the story. But when asked simply why he'd not volunteered this information at his previous interview, he claimed that he'd simply forgotten about moving the lino due to the passage of time and had only remembered when his father-in-law had reminded him of his assistance. With Occam's razor still very much on the table then, and by now almost certain that this was their fella, DCI Midgley now decided to check the Greens' telephone bill records with British Telecom. Since Christian alleged that the arrangements for moving this liner had been made by his in-laws calling him at McCain's on the day of the murder, it stands to reason then that this could be verified with a simple check of an itemised telephone bill from the Greens number covering the time period encompassing the date of the murder, which would confirm or deny his new alibi. A copy of the itemised telephone bills for both the Greens and Christian's home phone numbers was officially requested from BT covering this relevant period, but unfortunately, DCI Midgley was told that the Greens bill for the time frame had been lost and couldn't be located. Do you even still get itemised telephone bills nowadays? I couldn't tell you, I don't have a house phone. A few days after this dead end, a forensic scientist named Robin Falconer contacted Detective Inspector John Curry, who by that time had left the inquiry and was working on the Child Protection Unit, but was still actively involved with the case, not wanting to let it go because of the determination to bring Margaret's killer to justice. Such had the crime horrified him. Falconer called D.I. Curry directly, and told him excitedly that crucial new evidence had come to light that was, a quote, very, very significant. 
Now this was only an interim finding as the testing was still going ahead, but Robin Falconer reported that the clothing belonging to Derek Christian that had been recovered from the home of his parents had been examined. Several items recovered were of the type that don't shed fibres easily due to their material and composition, and so had been unsuitable for testing, but three items of clothing had been able to be tested because they met the criteria and did shed. A match of 16 fibres had been discovered on exhibit JCC15, Margaret Wilson's coat, that were alien to the garment, but that could be matched as being microscopically indistinguishable, keep those choice of words in mind, with fibres taken from exhibit item KJB1, the green and purple polyester and acrylic fleecy regatta jacket that Derek Christian claimed he always wore and that he was wearing on the day of the murder. Five of these fibres were green polyester from the body of the garment, five were purple polyester from the sleeves, and six were purple acrylic from the cuffs of the jacket. Ten of these fibres had been found on the front of Margaret's coat, with the remaining six found on the back. By September 1996, Robin Falconer's findings were that the final count from a forensic examination of each item of Margaret's clothing that she'd worn on the day of the murder revealed some 78 fibres, each microscopically indistinguishable, from three items of Derek Christian's clothing. Exhibit KJB1, the fleece. Exhibit JPK04, the faded apple green Carlsberg sweater and exhibit JPK-05, a pair of blue-grey jogging bottoms. The clothing that he claimed to have been wearing on the day of the murder. To ensure that none of these fibres found on Margaret Wilson had got there through innocent contamination, that is, contact with someone at home or in a shop, every person who'd been in contact with her during the last two weeks of her life was traced. Now it must have been the right sizeable task that. Think how many different people you're in contact with in a two week period just going about your normal routine. But fortunately, Margaret was a creature of habit and had limited contacts, so they could all be traced. Fibres from garments that they'd been wearing at the time were available and despite them having been washed several times since, were cross-checked for fibres from them against those removed from Margaret's clothing but none were found to match. So now, looking seriously at Derek Christian, regatta were approached, and it was discovered that two jackets that appear ostensibly identical could come from different manufacturing batches, and therefore, if they were made at separate times, could look totally different under a microscope if they were made from different fibres. All but one batch of these jackets were traced and eliminated, whilst Christian's green Carlsberg world-famous logo sweatshirt, which he had admitted being given at an army social evening in Germany, was also sourced. Travelling to the Carlsberg brewery in Denmark, detectives found that its computer system still held details of how many of these shirts had been dispatched and where they'd been dispatched to, but it was worldwide. The garments were manufactured in Portugal, and a visit to the manufacturer there revealed that, as with the jacket, the fibres differed from batch to batch of the sweatshirts created. The tracksuit pants, again with the used company being a common brand in the UK, were found to be exactly the same, manufactured in Dubai and distributed to the UK 
where they were then distributed on again and sold in shops and on market stalls. But ultimately, it was thought that the chances of anyone other than Derek Christian wearing this get-up that he'd admitted he was wearing on the day of the murder, coming into contact with Margaret Wilson within a day of her murder and leaving 78 microscopically indistinguishable fibres on her clothing were satisfyingly remote. Now we'll talk more about the fibre evidence later on in this tale. As you can imagine though, these findings did wonders for the morale of the investigating team. Despite the amount of circumstantial evidence against Christian, there were some members of the squad who didn't share the same conviction that Christian was the man with others. Some may have looked at other unsolved murders spanning back several years as possibly linked, that Christian may not have even been in the country to have committed at the time. But with the fibre findings, it was just that one piece that convinced each that there was just too much to ignore. Following the statement from Robin Falconer, dated 13th of September 1996, in which he gave his findings, and a detailed summary of which can be found in the sources section of the episode show notes, it was felt that the investigation had now gone as far as it possibly could. The findings of the inquiry team, all written evidence plus the forensic reports were collated, and in October 1996, Detective Superintendent Corrigan Detective Chief Inspector Midgley and Detective Inspector Curry approached a solicitor to check the strength of the evidence that they had before approaching the Crown Prosecution Service with it. After its examination by the CPS and their appointed lawyers, police were assured that they certainly had enough to arrest and charge Derek Christian with the murder of Margaret Wilson and to bring the case to court. Once again at the crack of dawn on Monday the 25th of November 1996, Derek Christian was arrested at his parents' home, startled as he believed that he'd now been eliminated from the inquiry due to having heard nothing from police for several months. He was taken to Beverly Police Station and interviewed by DC Wally Youngman once again, where he remained completely unruffled as Youngman set out the evidence that police had against him. The same car, the source of the knife and the fibre evidence. He once again repeated his story, the updated version this time, that he'd been helping his in-laws move linoleum at the time of the murder and had no explanation for the 78 fibres that were microscopically indistinguishable from his clothing police had seized. Everything points to you. You killed Margaret Wilson, he was told by DC Youngman. Now Christian's reply to this was not given in anger or shock. Instead, he merely said scornfully, I don't think so. Following this, the interview was terminated and Derek Christian was charged with the murder of Margaret Wilson. He appeared before magistrates in Great Driffield the following morning before being remanded to Hull Prison to await trial. Almost a year later, by the time Christian's trial was fast approaching, just four weeks away in fact, DC Youngman happened to be on the telephone to an engineer from British Telecom discussing a completely unrelated matter when the subject of itemised billing came up in the conversation. 
As an offside remark, DC Youngman told the engineer that it was a shame that itemised telephone bills could be lost, as it would have helped him on a previous case that he'd been working on. The engineer, and I hope that he said it like this, otherwise it's a proper missed opportunity, told Wally that if he thought that, then he would be a Wally, because these bills couldn't be lost, simple as, the information was stored on the BT servers. Taking the details of the telephone number and time frame required, the Greens telephone number from the February more than two years before, the engineer said he would see what he could do. Six days later, he was back in touch with DC Youngman and he'd found the missing bill, which he faxed through to the incident room. Eagerly scrutinising the bill for calls that were made on the day of the murder, one jumped out. Although there were several telephone calls to the McCain switchboard on the bill in the days preceding and following the murder, which was understandable because George Green worked there after all, there'd been no phone call to McCain's made from the Greens on February the 9th. Rather, at 4.10pm on the day of the murder, a telephone call had been made from the Greens' house in Scarborough. Further investigation revealed that the number called was to a Scarborough furniture store, ostensibly concerning their house move. So they couldn't have been in Driffield at the time, and Christian's alibi was now deader than John Denver. DC's Youngman and Alibone now met with Christian's defence team to request an interview with George and Jean Green concerning the matter, which was granted, and when the facts were explained to them both at interview, Jean Green was embarrassed and apologetic, claiming that she simply must have mixed the dates up. It would have been her that rung, she claimed, as she was the only one to ever use the house phone, and if they hadn't been in Driffield at the time, then George Green would have been at work at McCain's. There was no question that the Greens were anything but honest people, certainly not the sort who'd be prepared to give someone a false alibi to cover up a murder and the lino trip had certainly happened, no one was disputing that, but most likely on the day after the murder. Simply, their memory for dates was not infallible. As a result of this, the alibi of, of Christian moving linoleum was withdrawn, Christian accepting that both he and the Greens must have simply mixed up the dates, and this had happened possibly the day after, possibly a month after the murder. Ahead of his trial, he instead reinstated his original alibi. Derek Christian's trial for the murder of Margaret Wilson began at Leeds Crown Court on Thursday the 13th of November 1997 before Mr Justice Bell, where he issued a plea of not guilty. The main planks of the prosecution case against Christian, led by Andrew Campbell QC, were that he and his car broadly fitted the description of the assailant and his vehicle, he did not have an alibi which could be substantiated for the crucial time of the murder and had later changed his alibi. The murder weapon was the same make of knife used at McCain's, Derek Christian's place of work, and was easily available to him. A newspaper published on 7th of February 1996 containing an article relating to the crime, Exhibit MEA7, was found at Derek Christian's parental home in March 1996, where he was living at the time perhaps kept as some sort of trophy, and forensic evidence revealed that some of the fibre types from the clothing he was wearing on the day of the murder were microscopically indistinguishable from fibres that had been found on the victim's clothing. 
Several eyewitnesses were called to court to give testimony, the main one being Marie Cundall, who had seen the man in the car who had frightened her so, and whose description was used as the basis for a photo fit and an enhanced video image of the man, who the prosecution alleged then went on to murder Margaret Wilson some five minutes later. Wendy Price, who had been spooked by a man in a white estate car some 10 miles from Burton Fleming about two hours before the murder, also gave testimony, as did Martin Hornsey, Nigel Houseman, Louise Gray and Karen Holloway. So too did super witness Linda Roundin, the lady who'd claimed that she'd seen a Montego prowling around her neighbourhood on the day of the murder and then come out with some bollocks story about dreaming up the number plate, but we'll get on to her shortly. Pathologist Dr John Clark gave evidence testifying to the nature of Margaret's injuries. Professor Worth, the metallurgist, gave evidence about his work to identify the stain on the knife, thus pinpointing the murder weapon as having originated from McCain's. And forensic scientist Robin Falconer gave lengthy and detailed testimony concerning the fibre evidence, the crucial piece which had led to Christian being re-arrested and charged. For the defence, which was led by Roger Keane QC, merely two witnesses were called, Linda Roundin and Derek Christian himself. They offered none of their own forensic experts. They offered Linda Roundin, who, when she appeared in the witness box, told the court the story that she'd told police, that she'd seen a man in a white Montego car driving around the neighbourhood earlier on the day of the murder, prowling, in an attempt to show that there was a more likely suspect than Christian in the area at a time where he could be successfully alibied as being at McCain's. As a point of note in her evidence, Mr Justice Bell requested that the exact measurement from her kitchen window to the road be taken and to be available for court the following day. But that evening, Linda's husband telephoned the incident room and imparted the information that following giving her evidence in court, Struck by the seriousness of the situation, she had broken down in the car on the way home and admitted that her story was a complete pack of lies. She claimed she fabricated this story simply because she wanted to be a help to a new community that she'd just joined and she thought that it may help her fit in somewhat. A statement testifying to this effect was subsequently taken from Linda Roundin by two special branch officers unconnected with the investigation and formally presented as evidence to the court. The following day, having been informed of these new developments, Mr Justice Bell announced to the court that the defence needed to recall a witness and once again brought out Linda Roundin, who went into the witness box and then retracted her earlier evidence, admitting perjury. She was later to receive a six-month prison sentence for doing this, and most likely moved to a new house not long after her release. Now Linda, bake a cake to get in well with your new neighbours, love, instead of making up cock and bollocks stories about murderers that you haven't seen, because it's never going to end well for you, that is it. Now, although the defence requested a mistrial be called over this, the judge refused to allow this, and so now, with the witness the defence hoped would cast doubt on the circumstantial evidence offered by the prosecution, proven to tell bigger lies than a politician does, the only witness left was Derek Christian, and he did himself no favours in the witness box by performing poorly. Indeed, 
receiving what I found described through researching as a mauling from the prosecution barrister Andrew Campbell. Whereas on some aspects through questioning he was dogmatic over things like dates and times, claiming that he could always remember everything, on other things put to him, he'd become tongue-tied and invent a response instead of merely saying, I don't know, as though he himself were anxiously trying to prove his own innocence from the dock. Following summing up from both prosecution and defence, on Tuesday the 2nd of December 1997, the jury retired for less than two hours' deliberation before returning with a unanimous verdict of guilty, upon hearing which Christian stood in the dock, bowed his head. Before passing sentence, Mr Justice Bell told him, You have been convicted of the evil and gruesome murder of Margaret Wilson whose killing and manner of it must have caused immeasurable pain to her family and friends, and great concern to a number of people, particularly women who live in East Yorkshire. Derek Christian was then sentenced to life imprisonment with the recommendation that he serve a minimum tariff of 20 years, before being taken away to start his sentence. Following the verdict, Margaret's granddaughter Rachel Wilson was quoted as saying, the past three years have been a living nightmare, but we feel we can finally let my nan rest in peace now this evil man has been convicted. The judge also paid special commendation to the investigating team for the long, complex and at times fraught investigation, and on the 12th of May 1998, each officer involved received a chief constable's commendation. A senior officer said at the time, the inquiry into the murder of Margaret Wilson was a long and complex investigation in England and abroad. Forensic evidence was also an extensive part of the investigation. The case was reviewed by the Crown Prosecution Service and a senior barrister before Derek Christian was charged with the murder of Mrs Wilson. He appeared before a jury who, after hearing the evidence, found him guilty of murder. Derek Christian had launched an immediate appeal against his conviction, which was heard and refused by then Lord Chief Justice Lord Bingham in March 1998. Now this is following Lord Bingham as two months previously, quoting on the minimum tariff of 20 years imposed by Mr Justice Bell in the case, following his review of the trial notes, as follows. This is such a strange and obscure story it is difficult to recommend any punitive term with complete confidence. I would be inclined to recommend a somewhat shorter term of 16 to 17 years. After considering the circumstances of the offence, the recommendations of the trial judge and the Lord Chief Justice, as well as the written representations made on Derek Christian's behalf, Christian's minimum tariff was indeed set at 17 years on the 22nd of February 1999 by then Home Secretary Jack Straw, meaning he would be eligible for possible release by 2015. However, he remains serving a life sentence to this day, despite repeated attempts to draw attention to the case from the Criminal Cases Review Commission, requesting that the case be reviewed and referred to the Court of Appeal by a massive campaign launched by Christian's brother Kevin and his sister Tracy. They, plus his entire family and several others, including Christian's ex-wife Diane and his three now adult sons, Joel, Daniel and Liam, 
are convinced that Derek Christian is incapable of murder, a murder which he has always denied committing and continues to deny to this very day. And in the next episode, and it is the final episode of it, we shall look a bit more closely at the evidence that convicted Derek Christian and have a bit of a talk about it, as that's a perfect place to leave the episode before I complete what, as I said, has just become a trilogy for two reasons. Firstly, because it's far too complex a case this one to try and condense down too much, and secondly, because I've been plugging away at it for long days and late nights, and I really, really cannot be arsed writing any more right now. I've just really picked some of the cases this series, haven't I? But as I've said often, I don't care how long the episode arcs are, it's about telling the story as best you can do, and they're always as long as they need be. So look out for that one coming up soon, most likely Christmas week, and I shall bugger off and crack right on with it now. You don't have to wait until then to get in touch though, you can of course as ever get in touch should you wish to discuss the case to date, either by doing so in the episode thread that's up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or through any of the show's social media, I don't mind at all, I always look forward to hearing from you guys. Right before we go, as I said at the onset of the episode, I'm also thrilled this time around to do something we've not done for ages here on The Enthusiast, and that's to include a trailer for a show, this time around being a new collaborative investigative podcast series, The Shattered Window, which is produced and hosted by friends of The Enthusiast, Eileen McFarlane, better known as the creator and host of the Crime Lapse podcast, and Emily G. Thompson, who may be more familiar to you all as the host of Morbidology. Now Eileen and Emily have teamed up and spent a great deal of time and effort this year producing a fascinating, well-researched investigative series concerning the murder of seven-year-old Jacqueline Dewallaby, who disappeared from her home in Illinois in 1988 and was found murdered five days later. But here's Eileen and Emily to tell you some more about the series. The murder of Jacqueline DeWallaby is a tragedy that has puzzled and polarised the minds of those who know it. Over the past six months, we've extensively investigated this case, trawling through files, trial transcripts and archives, and have been conducting interviews with the people who've lived through it. It was a sensational startling fact that a seven-year-old little girl had shown up missing from a suburban home. Something like that happening would have never crossed our parents' minds. The notion that a stranger can slip into a child's bedroom in the middle of the night, completely undetected, is surely a notion that every single parent on this earth fears. But what's even more lamentable is knowing that a child killer is roaming the street. And even more chilling, they could be someone you know. Hosted by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane, this is The Shattered Window. The Shattered Window is now out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much wherever you get your shows from. And I'll also be including several more promos for shows from the next series onwards, as we haven't done it for a long while and it's a really decent thing to do. 
With that, it's wrap-up time here as ever on the show. So all that remains for me to say is that I thank you all once again for joining me here today. And that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys good and safe times. Stay safe out there, you lot. And I shall speak to you very soon. Take care, folks, and goodbye for now.